Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you from the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And um, we're on chapter 25, page 233. And we are part way under the heading Other Men and Other Polices. Well, this is a continuation. I ran out of space on the last episode. So let's continue. Thank you for listening. In the evening, Brother Luff and I received a call from Mrs. Lucy A. Young, first wife of Joseph Young, Brigham's brother and president of the High Priest Quorum of the Utah Church. She was accompanied by her daughter, and I've already given a short account of this interview without giving the date thereof. Among my callers on Monday, July the 27th were Charles L. Russell and Lewis Smith from Kansas, Andrew Jensen, a Scandinavian and assistant historian of the Utah Church, and Edward Partridge. The latter was a son of Bishop Partridge, who was tarred and feathered in independence in 1833 and died before the church assembled at Nauvoo. His widow, Marion William Huntington, a member of the High Council at the latter place. Edward had been in charge of the sugar plantations on the island of Oahu of the Sandwich Group and had but recently returned to America, settling at some point in southern Utah. We had been playmates and schoolfellows at Nauvoo, though he was three or four years younger. His sister Lydia, a very handsome girl, was my first sweetheart. I remembered Edward as a pleasant companion, though possessed of a very quick and high temper. A circumstance in illustration comes to mind. One afternoon, when there was no school, Edward Partridge, Titus Billings, Jared and Orlando Carter, George and Horace Clark and I, all living within a block of the Nauvoo mansion, were at play on our premises. We were divided into bands of white men and Indians, Edward among the latter and I, one of the former. In racing through the house, I had picked up an Italian stiletto, or small dirk in a silver scabbard and used it in chasing Indians in this scalping game. In some way, unnoticed by me, the scabbard became loosened from the dirk. As I ran up the outside cellar stairway and met Edward coming down, I threw out my hand in such a way that, exposed, that the exposed point of the dirk struck him on the leg and inflicted a gash which, though not deep in itself, was somewhat serious in that it had narrowly missed the femoral artery. In his hasty way, Edward took it for granted that I had injured him purposefully and was very angry, and it was a long time before he forgave me. The incident at once put a stop to our engine play. Mother dressed the wound, took charge of the stiletto, and I never afterwards permit was permitted to use a play with it. As I met the chat and... As I met and chatted with Edward, this occurrence of the far-off past came to mind. We talked long and interestedly, our subjects covering the grounds of belief held by both. He had tenaciously, he held tenaciously to the belief that my father was implicated in some way in introducing into the curriculum of faith of the church the doctrine of plural marriage. However, in reply to my questions, and notwithstanding the fact that his sisters Elizabeth and Emily had been named by the Utah Church authorities as two of my father's reputed wives, he stated he had nothing 
within his own personal knowledge to show that any such relation existed. I did not ask him where his sisters were or how they fared. I had understood that Eliza and Emily both became wives of Amaza Lyman, but I did not seek to verify the information by asking Partridge a direct question. In a brochure published by Andrew Jensen, Emily is said to have married Brigham Young as a polygamous wife long subsequent to 1844. At the time the will of Brigham Young was published, it was shown he had disposed of an estate amounting to something like $2 million, bequeathing to 19 wives and 47 children. Unfortunately for his reputation, he failed to mention therein property belonging to the church which he held as trustee and trust. I called Partridge's attention to this omission and asked what was this his opinion of the honesty of President Young in thus leaving to his family property which did not belong to him. His answer was, it would not be proper for me to speak against the Lord's anointed. I gained little from our conversation except that he had taken the rule of Brigham Young in good faith and that he personally knew nothing that would at all implicate my father as having any connection with the polygamic delusion. For this fact, I was grateful as it added another testimony to those I had steadily gathered from other sources, all of which strengthened my conviction that whatever part my father may have played, it was not in the power of the Utah church to present evidence worthy of being called proof that he had been either a polygamist himself or had in his administration admitted the admitted the dogma and practice into the church on the 28th i visited elder peter rains rainsimer with whom i had stayed during my visit in 1876 and was much pleased to renew my acquaintance with him and his family he had a son and a daughter with his wife he had stood manfully by our work both on my former visit and this one attending services faithfully the next heading cousin John Henry. Next day, John Henry Smith, a member of the Quorum of Twelve in the Utah Church, came to visit me. He was a son of my father's cousin, George A. Smith, who was one of the apostles at the time of my father's death. Of these, I have made mention here to four. John Henry was a plurist, as he called himself, in admitting to me his relationship in his disregard he spent the afternoon some five hours in a close and friendly exchange of views on the differences of belief which separated us an interview which i then regarded and do now as being highly gratifying to me he contended fairly well for the condition of things which had obtained in utah although they had grown up about him through the efforts and machinations of others for he was but a boy when his father removed to the territory the result of our talk as expressed by him was well cousin joseph you have put this matter before me in the strongest light in which i have ever seen it and i acknowledge that so far as the books are concerned the argument is in your favour i do not care to contend against the truth but i will say that i am a pluralist and always expect to remain one i assure you i am your friend however and i want you to regard me in that light i want you to come often to see me as you do the other boys referring to john and samuel 
The friendship established between us that day was never broken, and I have pleasant memories of John Henry. He was very courteous all through our discussion, which was not conducted in the least bit of bitterness or accusation. He seemed inclined to be frank, and as I had nothing to conceal, I met him in the same spirit and we talked freely. I have never heard that he abused in any way the sacredness of the confidence ex existing between us or attempted to twist or turn our conversation to any advantage to himself in this respect he was quite different from some others whom i have met i recall that it was through john henry's courtesy i procured at a later time an interview with wilfred woodruff after the latter had become president of the united of the Utah Church. In writing thus of John Henry, I may say that I have already related in these memoirs the dream I had on the 10th of September 1911, in which I saw him and our cousin, Joseph Fielding Smith, the former apparently a very sick man, and how, on the 14th, I wrote him about it, expressing my anxiety. On the 18th, he wrote me he was never in better health in his life, which letter was followed in a few days by one from Joseph F. announcing the death of John Henry on the 13th of October. I wrote at once, offering my sympathy and condolence, but I was conscious, as I have confessed, of a feeling of definite joy, which I trust is pardonable, at the new evidence the episode afforded that the spirit of prophecy had not deserted the family. Shortly after that, just two years ago this month, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir made a tour of the East with Bishop David Smith, one of Joseph F.'s sons, in charge. On their return, they stopped in Kansas City to sing in one of the theatres there. Some of them visited Independence and assembling on the temple lot, here sang one stanza of We Thank Thee, O God, for a Prophet. A daughter of John Henry, a large, fine-looking girl who was a member of the choir, upon our introduction, thanked me on behalf of the family for writing them as I had. On the ninth of this present month, November 1913, two sons of President Joseph F. Smith, named respectfully George Carlos and Elias Wesley, called on me and casually inquiring concerning her, I learnt that this daughter of cousin John Henry had married since our meeting two years ago and recently had become a mother. Turning to one of the boys suddenly and laying my hand on his knee, I asked, Say, tell me, has she a husband all to herself? The boys laughed and assured me that she had. Next heading, Cousin Joseph Fielding. In passing, I may add that on the 4th of the present month, I received a call from Joseph F. Smith, president of the Utah Church. He had been travelling eastward and stopped off Independence and Kansas City on his way back to Utah. One of his wives was with him. Report has it that he now has five living and they were accompanied by S.O. Benyon in charge of the Central States Mission for their church and George Albert Smith, a son of John Henry. With the latter, my wife and I had performed with the latter, my wife and I had formed a very pleasant acquaintance when we were in Salt Lake City the fall of 1905. At that time, he treated us very courteously, calling for us with his carriage and taking us for a long and pleasant ride, during which he pointed out the sights of the city and otherwise entertained us most happily. I note this visit of my cousin Joseph F. with the greater interest for the reason that, except for an interview, 
in the spring of 1860 when he passed through Illinois on his way to a mission in England and a short visit with him in his home in 1876 when by his invitation I took supper with him I had not seen him to have speech with him I had seen him on one occasion from a seat in the tabernacle as he presided over a conference of his church. This may appear singularly to the readers of these memoirs, but the reason will be easily recognised when I state that on my visits to Utah in 1885 and 1889, he was keeping out of the way of the deputy marshals of the United States who had writs for his arrest upon the charge of practising polygamy. In other words, to use the expression then common in the city of the saints, he was on Varian's Underground Railway, Varian being the name of the United States prosecuting attorney for the territory. After the territory became a state and living with polygamous wives was defined by law to be a misdemeanor only, Joseph F. was prosecuted on the charge of having had a child born to him after the time prohibited by statute. He paid a fine for the misdemeanor, making his appearance and plea of guilt through an attorney. His visit to me this month was what may be called merely a perfunctory social call and no subject was broached between us which could provoke any discussion or arouse any feeling of antagonism. The next heading, Other Callers, and this is the last um, little section of chapter 25. Sometime during this summer of 1885, while in Utah, I was waited upon one day by a Scotsman named MacDonald who proceeded to challenge me to debate. I asked him if he had been authorised by the church there to represent it, and he said he had not. I asked him if he had a certificate of recommendation from the general authorities of his church to meet me or some other of our men in such discussion. He answered that he had not, that he did not want to discuss with anyone but me and didn't think the church officials there would give him a certificate standing for such a purpose. Of course, I felt under no obligation to assume a combat with any man under those circumstances, feeling that if there was necessity for a public discussion, it should be arranged in a different manner than that, and under more official auspices than merely a personal contest. I so told him, and he left, quite disturbed and angry. His thought, he thought, no doubt, that my refusal to meet him resulted from some fear that my position and that of the reorganisation could not be successfully maintained. If he so thought, it was a grave mistake. Another person who called on me that summer at Brother Warnock's was a man whom I had known when I was a boy, and whom I used to like very well as a young man, a genial, pleasant young fellow. His name was Solon Foster. When he heard that I was in the city, he came as he said, from a distance of 130 miles, to have a talk with me and tell me what he knew. Our conversation was pleasant until he proposed to tell me a good many things about my father's family, speaking as if he personally knew all about them. In the, earliest part, in the earlier part of our conversation, I had learned that he was not at Nauvoo for about two years before father's death. Therefore, he could not possibly have known of things happening in 1843 and early in 1844, up to the time of the tragedy. After he had borne his testimony, I proceeded to interrogate him. It was but a little while until he was forced to admit that he was repeating only what he had heard. For instance, he had stated that my father was a polygamist and had other wives other than my mother. I questioned him, Brother Solemn, 
Were you ever present at a marriage ceremony of any kind which occurred between my father and any other woman than my mother, Emma Tao? No, I was not even present at their marriage. When you were an inmate of my father, father's house, at occasion, stated periods, as you have said, did you ever see any woman there whom you knew to be a wife to my father other than my mother? No, sir. Did you ever meet in social gatherings anywhere in the city of Nauru at any time a woman in company with my father introduced by him or others as his wife other than my mother Emma? No, sir. Did you ever see my father in his own home or elsewhere where people were assembled in a social meeting of any kind conduct himself in a familiar, intimate or endearing manner towards any woman other than his mother, than my mother? What do you mean by that? he asked. I mean this, Solomon. You know that husbands and wives sometimes express their affection for each other in the presence of other people, often using endearing terms or putting an arm around one another or offering some caress. Did you ever see a gesture of this kind offered by my father towards any woman whom you understood at the time to be in a position as his wife to accept such caresses or endearments other than my mother? With flushed face and a suspicion of confusion, he said, Brother Joseph, you have no business to ask me such pointed questions. At this I said, Yes, Brother Solomon, I have, and a legitimate and a legitimate business too. I was baptised by my father and confirmed a member of the church he organised. The faith into which I was baptised and confirmed was the faith which was held and taught by the church at that time, and it included no provision concerning polygamy. There were no polygamic marriages known to me to exist therein at that time. Now you say you have come down from the mountain to tell me what you know, and if I am to believe what you state stated when you first came, before I began to question you, I would be compelled to believe that my father was a scoundrel, unfaithful and untrue to the commands he had re received from God, and guilty of dealing treacherously with my mother, that he broke not only the laws of God, given to the church through him as prophet and revelator, but also the vows he had pledged with my mother at the altar in 1827. So I repeated, it is my business to find out the truth, even if it should involve the necessity on my part of losing faith in my father's purity at li of life and conduct and believing him to be a libertine and an evil-minded man. However, now that I have questioned you closely, I discover that, like others, you know nothing at all personally that would so convict and condemn him. For you say you never taught, he never taught you the doctrine. You say you never saw him married to any other woman than my, other than my mother. You say you never saw him act towards any other woman as though she were his wife in any form and that you were never introduced to any other woman who posed or was recognised either in his house or at the house of anyone else as his wife. I say I have indeed the right to ask you and question any question which would either confirm your original statements or refute them. I have the right to bring out the truth from you as to what you really do know and what you have only just heard from others. He seemed quite abashed at the vigour and earnestness with which I spoke. I told him I did not hold him responsible for that which he had heard, but that he had no business to repeat or to testify to things that had not come within his own personal knowledge and to the truthfulness of which he could not swear. 
I do not know that he ever forgave me for the cross-examination to which I subjected him, but I do know that I had gone to Salt Lake City with the firm intention of examining closely every statement presented to me by anyone which bore upon the differences existing between my church and the one dominant in that western valley, and intended to use every means in my power to ascertain and establish either their truth or falsity. Solomon Foster was now another specimen of the kind of witness and his statements of the kind of testimony which those people out there were asking me to accept. That's the end of um, chapter 25. We carry on in the next episode with chapter 26 and it continues with Utah. Thank you for listening.